Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. But as we always do, take out your Bibles, open them up to Mark's Gospel, the chapter 2, and we'll take the first 12 verses. And I want to ask you a couple of questions, and then we'll pray. What is your greatest need today? What did you come to church expecting God to do? What is it that when you got up this morning, you would say, Lord, this is what I need from you. Because I truly believe that all of us, every day, actually multiple times every day, go through these basic questions. Lord, this is an area of need in my life. Lord, this is what I need you to do because only you can do it. And it is that scenario that we find here as we begin chapter 2 in Mark's Gospel. What really is our greatest need? Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the power of your word to transform, to renew, to change, to build, to mold, and to shape our lives. And we pray now as we open your word that you would speak to us as your church. Encourage us and strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember here in Mark's gospel, we have the Gentile account. This very same event is found in Matthew chapter 9, which is the Jewish account. A little bit different flavor there. But this is a story of a man who had a tremendous need. He actually had two of them. Every human being has the one that is the greater need, but we, like this man, often see the other things in our lives as the greater need. What have you come today in need of that only the Lord can do? Verse 1, Mark chapter 2, and again he entered Capernaum. Remember, this is now Jesus' hometown. This is where James and Andrew lived. This is the house of Peter's mother-in-law. This is his home base. Jesus frequently taught in the synagogue. When we were there just a month ago, we actually stood over and looked down into Peter's mother-in-law's home, the home, this very home. Now, when we think home, we think home in a modern term. We have to take our minds back a little bit, 2,000 years, and think of a home then. You know, we look at people, oh, how, how, how big's your house? And somebody says to us, well, it's 640 square feet. We go, oh, you poor thing. We're, we're accustomed to very large homes by the world's standards. But during this time, a poor man's home might have been, hear this, 40 to 50 square feet. Four feet, five feet by 10 feet. An average home, maybe 20 by 10, 200 square feet. A little bit bigger home, maybe 20 by 20, had a couple of rooms, 400 square feet. Some of you probably have living rooms that size. A mansion, largest home ever excavated in all of the Holy Lands, all of Israel, is 1,850 square feet. Largest home ever excavated. So we find a home. In this case, I've stood over it. It's probably 300 square feet. He entered Capernaum, and after some days, it was heard that he was in the house. Underline that, please. The reason it says the house and not a house is because it was a very specific house, the house. 
the house where he always could be found. He had moved in with Peter and his mother-in-law. Peter's home. The Byzantines built the church over this specific site and in doing so preserved it. So we know exactly where this is. The house. And immediately many gathered together. Now I don't know if what I just said makes sense to many of you, but I think it probably does. Now imagine this is 300 square feet. So it's about the size of that part of the stage. And many have gathered inside. Doesn't take 150 people to fill that space up, amen? But if you put five in there, it would be pretty full. If you put 10 in there, you wouldn't be able to move. If there are more than that, people are shoulder to shoulder. This is a tight space. But people know something's going to happen because Jesus was often found there. So that there was no longer room to receive them. Not even at the door. So we have people standing outside. And he preached the word to them. Jesus was the word. Amen? Amen. So every word the word spoke was the word. Amen? People often look at this like Jesus grabbed a Bible. No, Jesus is the Bible. Every word he spoke was the word. And so when he talked, the word was being spoken. And so Jesus now is speaking to this group. We actually are not told what he said. But he preached the word to them. We know that he knew his scriptures because he authored them by the Holy Spirit. Was he speaking as he often did from one of the prophets? Maybe. But every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is true, amen? Amen. So Jesus is speaking truth to this crowd. It is in that context that you need to understand what follows next. The living word is speaking to people directly into their lives. There's not room for any more people to come in. And then they came to him, bringing a paralytic. Now that word is interesting. It's translated sometimes crippled, handicapped. But it could also be translated a man with quadriplegia. This man was incapable of moving himself anywhere. Truly in the most desperate of situations in the ancient world. Because they didn't have social programs. They didn't have advanced health care. They didn't have motorized wheelchairs. They didn't have anything to take care of them. And in fact, if someone didn't take up your cause, typically you were dead in a very short period of time. But this man had what we pray all of us have a handful of in our lives. He had four friends. And in fact, the number seems to indicate that we know what it is that they lowered through this roof. You and I actually might call it a pallet, and in some versions of your Bible, it's probably translated exactly that. It was a wooden platform on which this man normally laid, and he was carried from place to place, likely from a place where he would beg. He could do nothing about his own situation. His situation in that sense was fixed. Maybe by genetics, maybe by an accident, maybe by his socioeconomic status, maybe by his parents. We don't know how he ended up in this condition. And actually, it's not important how he ended up in this condition. The fact of the matter was that he could do nothing about where he found himself. Church. That's every person here in this room. That's every person online. 
because we all have things in our lives about which we have had zero control. Some of those things have happened to you. Some of them are accidents. Some of them are tragedies. Some of them are evil perpetrated upon you. Some of them are injustices. Some of these things to you are just exactly like this man. Now, you may be able to walk, but you may well be just as paralyzed. Maybe your heart is paralyzed with fear. Maybe your mind is paralyzed with anxiousness. But you are nonetheless just as paralyzed. And apart from Christ, we can do nothing. There's a place in everyone's life that only Jesus is the answer. And there is one place that is common to absolutely every one of us. And that is our sin. You were born a sinner. There isn't a person in here, if you came and you expected me to tell you how good you are, I'm not going to do it. I will tell you that your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and who can know it? That as David said, you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were born actually as a sinner in sin. So we all have that problem. You see, sometimes we think that the things that have happened to us are the real problems in our life. That's where this man was before he met Jesus. bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. Now, this is an interesting picture because most homes were not truly two stories, but they had a roof that was normally some logs, straw, packed mud, and it was up there that they did all kinds of chores, maybe sat in the evening. It was cooler there, surely, than inside the home. But they weren't exactly built to coat. There were, there were no roof joists to go through. There was no sheathing. There, there were no girders. There were no beams. There were just some rough sticks and some smaller sticks and typically packed dirt mud. So they decided, hey, that's not really a very formidable floor. We'll just remove the floor. We know how to get him in there, and we know what he needs. They uncovered the roof where he was. And so when they had broken through, now think about this, Peter's in the house. And here's these dudes doing demo on his roof. It's like people just show up and all of a sudden the hammering and the banging and the dirt's falling through and the sticks and they're buried. The room, remember, is packed full of people. Do you think all that dirt stayed up on the roof that they somehow meticulously peeled it all off? No, almost assuredly, the dirt is now on top of the people inside the room. They're buried in the mud, the dirt, and the sticks. They let the bed down on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, without faith, It is impossible to please him. Amen? Faith is the secret ingredient. It's the one thing we all have to have. It's the only thing that can save, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. These four men had faith. They had faith in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They had faith, and he said to the paralytic, and I want you to notice this, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now stop and hover there for a second. 
That's probably not what he was expecting, amen? To you and I, there was kind of something else that he was likely lowered through the roof for, don't you think? But isn't that how the Lord uses all of our paralyzed stories? You think it's about the alcoholism, or you think it's about the drugs, or you think it's about a relationship, or you think it's about your financial problems, or you think it's about your violence, or you think it's about your car accident, or you think it's about your cancer. You think it's about one thing, but Jesus is going to use that one thing you can do nothing about to reach the one thing that you really need. Amen? What is that one thing? We'll find out in a moment. You see, to you, you might think your greatest need is your cancer. Now, before I go any further, your cancer matters to Jesus. And we're going to see that in this passage. So don't misunderstand what's happening here. Jesus is going to do two things. Both are miraculous, One is the greater miracle. Jesus cares. But he cares most supremely about your eternity. Notice how we look at this situation. It's severe. As I said, there's there's literally nothing... And think about it. These guys are lowering this man into an already completely crammed full, very tight room that is now buried. These people are buried in dirt. They're sitting there (coughs) coughing up dust, spitting out chunks of dirt out of their mouth. No doubt sticks stuck in their hair, kind of, you know, something out of Lord of the Rings. They look like hobbits. That's the situation. There's all kinds of commotion, and there was not much anybody could do. If somebody wanted to anoint this guy with oil, what were they going to do? Were they going to try and the things coming down on their heads? And somehow they managed to lower this man down. Peter's probably thinking, okay, we're going to the rabbi. We're gonna, you, you just damaged my home. Because that's kind of Peter's MO, right? He takes care of the practical first and then learns the spiritual lesson. Anybody else do that? You all shout, throw your hands up. Because that's pretty much every person in this room. We see the thing. We worry about the thing. We try and take care of the thing. And then God's going, well, I'm doing another thing. He wants to minister to some area of your life. That's the reason you're in that situation. We have to see this for what it is, because it's you and me. You're the paralyzed man. And so am I. If you haven't figured it out by now, as you get older, you're going to figure out a lot of life comes to you in a not-so-nice package. You know, we're so used to going on Amazon, well, I'd like to buy a car. And outside your door, an hour later, here comes a vehicle. We live in such an unrealistic world about the solutions to our problems. We now think it's we just, well, I'll just order it. People have been like that since the beginning. Adam and Eve tried to order up their own reality too, didn't they? Remember what they did when they were caught in their sin? God's looking for them. Do you remember what they were doing? They were hiding. What was God's question? Who told you you were naked? They had no reference point for that, so they took it upon themselves to find a solution of their own making, which was fig leaves. We're pretty lame sometimes, aren't we? We're like, oh, here's the solution. 
I'll order it on Amazon. Here's the solution. I'll call my unsaved friends. They'll give me great counsel. And God is putting you in a situation that you can't do anything about for exactly the reason intended. He wants you to turn to him. And that's what this man does. He turns to Jesus. Notice these things that you can see here. God delights in using severe situations. But man, people who are religious... They want to say, oh, well, you know, the reason he's in that situation is fill in the blank. I can't tell you how many Christians I've listened to give the excuses for which they believe somebody is in some situation that is dire. It's mind-boggling. Well, you know, he'd have a job if he was just walking with the Lord. Do you know that man's prayer life? Do you know that woman's situation? We don't, but we sure are quick to judge, aren't we? And you know what we judge? How they're doing. We look at how they're doing and go, oh, they must not be right with God. That's why that's like that. That is as old as the story contained in your Bible. Goes all the way back to the book of Job, by the way. Poor Job had some really wonderful friends. Even his wife told him to curse God and die. Right? Well, there's something wrong with you, Job. That's why you're in the situation. Sometimes, like Peter, we pull out our best consternation. Can't believe that's happening. Must be something really going on deeply spiritual in that person's life. But notice the response of Jesus. Two very powerful words. And they go together. Sometimes I read this passage and it just... kind of digs in a little bit. Son... Son, your sins are forgiven you. Two words, and we all need them. We all need to be brought into the family of God. We need a new sonship. We need to be daughters of the King. We need a change of family. And that can only be precipitated by a change in how your sins are dealt with. It can't be like Adam and Eve. Try and hide them. Justify them. It's the woman you gave me. It's my life circumstance. It's the situation. No, you're a sinner and you need a savior. And so Jesus speaks a simple sentence. Son. Your sins are forgiven you. I think that he was probably waiting for what comes second. First. No doubt his friends had faith. They wouldn't have brought him to Jesus, but I think they had faith primarily to see this man healed. But there was a bigger problem. Can I tell you something? You could have every one of your earthly problems fixed, and if you don't have the son, your forgiven problem fixed, your problems aren't actually fixed. Amen? They're not. You can have everything this world has to. Jesus said it. What profits it a man if you were to gain the entire world and to lose his own soul? Jesus' perspective on this passage is, It's far more important to have your sins forgiven and for you to be a son of the living God, a daughter of the living God, than you being healed of being paralyzed. Because the worst thing that can happen to you as a paralyzed person, not underestimating the the sadness, 
the difficulty, the hardship, or the heartache, as a paralyzed person, you're going to die and go to one of two places. Heaven or hell. And you're going to be in those two places for a very long time. But you could be healed of being paralyzed and perish eternally. And so Jesus says, let's square away the thing that's most important. Welcome home, son. Much like the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Do you remember what the son said? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous, not one. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned into our own, turned to our own way. That our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. These truths are embedded in the gospel message itself. We can't fix our own sin. And so this man is sitting there thinking that if I just was not paralyzed, but he has enough faith to believe that something bigger can happen in his life. I love this story. That forgiveness is so simple. It's so incredibly simple that the world's religion looks at it and laughs. Like, it can't be that simple. You mean I need to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and I'll be saved? Yes. And that is exactly it and all of it. Now, once that happens, your life will never be the same. Amen? Amen. We're going to see that in this man's life. His life would never be the same. But his life would never be the same, not because just he was healed of the being paralyzed. He was forgiven of his sin. You know, you walk a little differently when you're forgiven of the sin. You talk differently when you're forgiven your sin. You act differently when your sin is forgiven. Everything in your life, it's all a new day. Amen? Amen. Every day's a new day in Jesus. I don't know why the church is so silent on this issue in the way that we think and act. I, I really don't know why. I get up every day as a redeemed of the Lord. Can I say here, I? I'm redeemed of the Lord. I'm no longer going to perish eternally. I'm going to heaven. Church. Church. Notice the hindrances to this need. Our greatest need. Notice the, the reply of the scribes. Now, I want you to know something. These were very learned people. Probably the most brilliant in the city or town, really, of Capernaum. Scribes. And some of the scribes were sitting there. Now, this is wonderful to me. That means Jesus was reaching some people who didn't want to be reached. They thought they already had it, already knew what they needed to know. And reasoning in their hearts, that word reasoning actually is an interesting word because when you look at it in its original context, it meant inspecting. They weren't just reasoning. They were trying to find out, nah, I don't think so. This whole, nah, it's not that simple. They're trying to, what power do you have to forgive sin? How is it that you can do anything for this man? And some of the scribes, verse 6, were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Notice what they say. Here's a man that's just been adopted into a new family. He's known nothing good in his entire existence, so far as we know. And Jesus said, son. That was if you just stop there, it's a term of endearment. Somebody took care on this man's life. But you know what they rejected? Your sins are forgiven you. Yeah, he can't do that. 
Matter of fact, we're not sure anybody has their sins forgiven. Now think in a Jewish context now. They're about 65 miles from Jerusalem, from the temple. And as far as the Jewish person was concerned, you needed to make sure that you were actively engaged in the 10 days of awe, which just ended. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Finally, the priest offers up a sacrifice for himself and for his family and for all the sins of Israel. Only the high priest can see to it that our sins are atoned for. But it's actually only God that can forgive them. They're banking on their sins one day being forgiven. They're only atoned for. They're put away. These guys are enraged. They're like, there's no way. He can't do that. Not in front of us. We've got to say something. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, they actually had their theology correct. Be really careful. Because you might be one of those very bright people that thinks you have all your theology correct, but you could not be more wrong about the grace of God. Because you're saved by grace through faith. You're not saved because you're a theologian. You're not saved because you went to Bible college. You're not saved because you've memorized a bunch of scripture. You're not saved because you go to this church or any other church. You are only saved because of the unmerited favor of God poured out on your life when you said yes to Jesus. That's the message of grace. You see, religion hates grace because grace is free. Religion wants to put you under bondage, and here's the things you need to do to earn God's favor. Well, the fact of the matter is, you can't do anything to earn God's favor. You will do things to show him you love him after you're saved, but you can't earn or merit his favor by your works. By the works of the flesh is no one, Paul said, justified. And so this is the hindrance that we all face. And immediately, verse 8, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had judged him or reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? What's the problem is a good way to look at that. Why do you have a problem with this? Have you ever met that person that cannot rejoice when God does something in someone else's life? Maybe you are that person. I don't mean to offend unnecessarily, but maybe that is you. You can't rejoice when God does something good in someone else's life. You can't believe that that person who was a prostitute or that person who was a drug addict or that person whose marriage was a wreck or that person who was a criminal, a murderer, you can't believe that God would save them. And so what do you do? Well, I'll just watch them. Pretty soon they'll slip up and then I'll know for sure they're not actually saved. You better be really careful because your bitter heart towards someone who's received grace is just as ugly to God as their sin. Amen? Be careful. That is exactly why Jesus said, judge not unless, he didn't say don't judge, he says judge not unless you judge rightly. Because for with the same measuring stick you measure others, you yourself will also be judged. So if you're a non-grace person, if you're a non-mercy person, if you're a non-forgiveness person, if God's love isn't given to anyone freely, if you're the person that thinks you have to earn God's favor, woe unto you. Because you can't earn it either. Your bitterness is just as ugly to God as their drug use. 
Your hatred for your fellow man is just as ugly as that prostitution. That homosexuality, as you point out, say, oh, gay, nobody, God can't save them. You know what? Your unbridled anger is just as ugly. Because all sin separates you from God. The result of every sin is the same. That's the beauty of the plan for grace to invade our lives. It takes the unmerited favor of God to fix every last one of us. And apart from that, you can't be fixed. Legalism, law-keeping can't save you. Rules can't save you. Truth is, God sees past your excuses and mine. Notice how the Lord looks right past this. And he begins by asking a question. Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Notice what Jesus says. Notice the emphasis. Be very careful about how you read these verses. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, that you may absolutely know that Christ alone has power while you're still on this earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, here it is. Isn't this us? We would reverse these things. Oh, heal yourself, get healed first, and then come for the grace. Because of that, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And to prove it, This is you. This is me. This is why you're here today. This is why you're still walking around. This is why you've been healed of your drug use. This is why you're no longer an alcoholic. This is why your marriage has been healed. This is why you don't have cancer. This is the reason why. Here's the reason why God worked in your life. I say to you, arise, take up your, your bed, and go to your house. The reason is to prove that God has the ability to bring you into his family and to forgive your sin. It's not the other way around. He does those things so that you are a walking testimony to his grace. Amen? That's why you have had those things. That's why Paul, as he writes to the church at Corinth, there in the second chapter of, of the second letter, he says, these things which I myself have been comforted in, I now comfort you. Can you imagine what this paralytic man, now walking around, saying, Jesus healed me from being paralyzed so that I could know that I am his son and my sins are forgiven. You talk about a testimony. Who's disagreeing with that one in a little small town of maybe a thousand people? Everybody knew this man. And he's wandering around giving glory to God. I once was paralyzed, but now I am not, so that I could tell you I'm in God's family and my sins are forgiven. Get the order right, because sometimes we flip it around. Well, you know, I think I'll go to church and hopefully God will cure my cancer. God wants to deal with your cancer. But the deepest cancer you have is the cancer of your heart. The sin cancer that's in you. That doesn't get fixed and everything else is a moot point. Doesn't matter. Oh, you might be fine for 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. But then the really bad stuff happens. You don't want to be found dead in your trespasses and sins. Only Jesus can forgive, and only while you're on earth. And I want to just say, 
can we just stop telling people that you can get it squared away after you die? Jesus said, while you're here on earth, I have the power to forgive sins. Why is that so very important? Because I, I have been to services where people are, well, we're just going to pray them out of purgatory. We're going to pray that the Lord has mercy on them. We know he lived a rotten, miserable life and never expressed any interest in God, but we'll just keep praying for him. Don't waste your time. Do you hear what I just said? Don't waste your time. If they're gone, they're gone. And they're gone to one of two places. And there is no changing destinations after you leave earth. It's fixed. Read Luke 16 if you don't believe that. There's no such thing as purgatory. And so you sitting around talking about how much you're praying for your great aunt that passed away. If your great aunt is in heaven, she doesn't need your prayers. And if she's not, those prayers will avail nothing for her. Nothing. Pray about something else. Because Jesus said your sins are either forgiven here on earth or they're not forgiven at all. It's why he spent so much time talking about hell and so little time talking about heaven. Doesn't want anybody to perish eternally. Purgatory is a myth. Notice it says, and immediately he arose and took up his bed and went forth before them all. Why is that important? Because Jesus said that's the proof that your sins are forgiven here. While you're walking around, you can walk around and rejoice that your sins are forgiven. He didn't say, well, you can just kind of do whatever you want. Figure it out after you die. doesn't work that way. In Christ, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Without him is to be consigned to Abraham's bosom to wait final judgment. Two roads from which to choose. The road to glory or the fool's highway. To quote a Maranatha song from 1968. This man was new. He was made alive. There's three things that you can take with you, three very powerful lessons that you can see here as we close. Man's greatest need is the forgiveness of sin. Now, in saying that, God cares about why you're paralyzed as well. But he primarily cares that your sins are forgiven. He's concerned about your job. He's concerned about your family and your parents, your children. He would love to see those things heal between you and that person with whom you have enmity. But he is primarily concerned that you are destined for heaven. Because heaven is forever. Here is not. It only seems like here is forever. And that's not to diminish the struggle against some disease or some sickness or some problem in your life. Those things are painful, but they're painful here and they're painful now. They are not painful to the believer in heaven. There is no death. There is no dying. There is no sickness. The lamb will lie down with the lion. The heaven that God inhabits is the fullness of joy. So whatever you missed out on here, if your sins are forgiven, I don't believe you're even going to remember it when you get there. You're going to get to heaven, be so enamored with the glories of heaven, that you're going to go, earth, what? Say, huh? Now, theologically, I can't give you a passage where it says that, 
But if in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy, I'm pretty sure, you know, it's, it's like if you were constantly on vacation. You know, most of us kind of whine and groan, well, my vacation's almost over, I've got two more days. Heaven is never ending in that aspect. You're not going to go, well, we're, we're done heaven. Forgiveness comes by faith. No other way. Forgiveness flows out of the heart of God. Notice what Jesus does. It was Jesus' mission. He could have been doing other things. I mean, this room was packed. I don't know about you, but I get in places like that. I'm not really all that excited about going in a little 10 by 20 building that's packed full of people with people dumping dirt on me and go, yeah, I'll sit in here for a while. But Jesus was there for one man. He needs me, and he's not even going to be able to get in here. But I'll make myself available to him. Jesus is making himself available to you right now. Right now. That may be for some of you for salvation. That may be for some of you for some horrible thing in your life that you need to be touched. You've already said yes to grace, but there's something going on that you need him to heal. If he has healed your heart, forgiven your sin, then you have his touch available to you. That was why he came. That's why he said, be of good cheer, cheer up. Your sins are forgiven. We walk around in that disposition. My sins are forgiven. You know, that's a pretty good equalizer for the evil that happens to us, isn't it? It's like I, I sit around sometimes, it's like when overwhelming things happen, do you know who's overwhelmed my sin? Jesus. And because he's overcome everything, I don't have to sit around and go, well, I hope this gets squared away because I sure feel like I got the short end. No, I get heaven. I get King Jesus forever. I get the body of Christ forever. I get the glory of the Lord forever. The joy of the Lord forever. No want, no need, no tear, no sickness, no death forever in Jesus. Amen? I don't know about you, I'm not trading that for anything else. I've gotten older, this most precious thing that is in existence in my heart, my mind, and my life is the fact that I know one day when I take my last breath, I know where I'm going. Amen. Amen? I feel sorry for people that don't have that confidence. And if I didn't have that confidence, I would not be here right now. But I do have that confidence. I know in whom I have believed, and he is able to complete that unto the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? So one day, you ever thought about seeing Jesus face to face? Have you started taking notes about what you're going to say? Oh, please do. It will actually help you. Journal it. When you get to heaven, the 10 things you want to say to Jesus. You know how mine starts? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for forgiving my sin. Amen? You've transgressed the law. You've been in open hostility and rebellion to God. It's incurable, as Jeremiah said. It affects everyone, as Romans 3.23 says. It affects your whole mind, body, and spirit, as Jeremiah 19 says. But Jesus is taking care of all of it. You're not going to get there and go, oh, man. Jesus is not going to be on the throne of heaven going, wow, I really didn't see that one coming. I had no idea that a human being could do that. Wow, sorry. No. You're going to hear, enter in to my kingdom of rest. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. And the truth is that the greatest need that you will have, I will have, all of us will have, 
is that our sins are forgiven. It's the only sickness that all of us share. You may have thought it was COVID, but it's sin. You may believe that cancer is the greatest threat to you. It's not, it's sin. Maybe heart disease runs in your family. No, the the worst disease in your family is sin. And if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ, his son from the dead, you will be saved and your sins will be forgiven. Would you stand with me? Scanning and the worship team comes back out. I just want to remind you that there's no specified way to get saved in Scripture. We find throughout the Bible multiple things that happen to lots of different people. Some of them, their salvation is absolutely instantaneous, like this man. And so right where you are right now, you can simply say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive my sin. Write my name in your book of life. Help me to live a life for you. You can do that right now. And if you do, because if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, why he came, you've just had the gospel preached to you. You can be saved right now. If you've got something in your life that you think is too big for God, you don't. It's not too big for Him. But you've got to give it to Him. So let's pray to that end right now. Father, we thank You. Lord, I want to pray if there's anyone here right now in this place, that they would open up their heart, and if they don't know You, Lord, they would simply confess that they are a sinner, and You are the only Savior and the only means whereby their sin can be forgiven. Open up their hearts to that truth and cause them to, right now, invite you in. And for those of us carrying immeasurable burdens, Lord, we cast those things at your feet, knowing, as Peter said, that you care for us. Lord, some in this room need to be healed. Some are blind and can't see. Some are lame and can't walk. Lord, we pray that you would take each one of our infirmities, that you would heal us, Lord, for your glory and for your namesake. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.